This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. You're watching The Hash on Coindesk TV, and if you're listening, you're listening on the Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Jen Sinassi, and I'm joined by Zach Seward and Will Foxley today. Hello, guys. Zach, I think you have the first story. We're going to be talking about a couple of billionaires who will not be buying Bitcoin anytime soon. Okay, breaking news. (laughs) Warren Buffett still hates Bitcoin. (laughs) Woo! Look at that. He would not pay 25 bucks for all the Bitcoin in the world. And there's some interesting details in this. They were speaking at an event, I believe it was the Berkshire Hathaway event. And he and right-hand man, Charlie Munger, were saying that Bitcoin is rather evil. Some interesting details in there about how Bitcoin undermines the Federal Reserve, but also Warren Buffett doubling down on his long-standing stance that Bitcoin is dumb. So that's what he says. It's increasingly a minority position among Wall Street titans, and yet he is sticking with it. Why? Because it doesn't do anything. He'd buy up the land, he'd buy up the apartments, he wouldn't buy up the Bitcoin, doesn't do a thing. So anyway, Warren Buffett doubling down on his anti-Bitcoin stance. Interesting to see that he continues to zig while others in the Wall Street scene zag toward Bitcoin, but I don't know what much more to say beyond that, but I will toss it to Will for his initial thoughts on Buffett. Yeah, let's parade out the two things that we saw on Twitter about this, which is the most important place to get intellectual conversation about Bitcoin. So on the one hand, we saw that people were like, hey, why do I care that these 90-year-old men who live in Nebraska have thoughts about the future of tech? Well, I don't care about that at all. I'm not going to ask them for investing advice about crypto. They haven't touched it for the last 10 years. It's the best performing asset. Great. Why do we keep asking them this headline year after year? Well, we know why we do it. It clicks really, really well. The other side of it was like a lot of Bitcoin maximalists who were like pretty toxic, surprising for going after these two for not picking up on Bitcoin at this point. But I think you just have to look at Charlie Munger's position and look at Warren Buffett's position and see like how well they have done over the years. And then you think, oh, well, why would they care? They don't need Bitcoin. They don't need to care about Bitcoin. They're continuing to do well. They continue to be relevant. Uh, every year, this headline rolls out for a reason because they do well in other markets. And so people are maybe waiting for some sort of narrative flip from them, but like that's not going to happen. Like, why would that ever happen in this situation? It's just a distraction from the thing that these two people really focus in on and do well with. I will say, though, that they do hit the quotes pretty well. So we should turn back to those really quickly. Buffett said, if you told me you owned all the Bitcoin in the world and you offered it to me for $25, I wouldn't take it. What would I do with it? Uh, there's also another great line from, I got to pull down here, from Munger said, in my life, I try to avoid things that are stupid, evil, and make me look bad in comparison to someone else. Bitcoin does all three. Those are pretty solid lines. I will say that. Like, they're good at getting the attention and just rolling these quotes out immediately. Uh, they must have some experience with describing assets. Jen, I'm going to throw it back to you for your take on it, though. The quotes made me giggle the entire time I was reading this article. And just like you said, Will, I think they're both entitled to their opinions. They're both very successful. They are both billionaires. What was frustrating for me while I was reading this, though, it's like they're saying it's stupid. It's evil. There's there's nothing to it. You know, other investments like like land actually bring you stuff, but Bitcoin doesn't bring you stuff. And And there was no mention of the other side of that coin. But again, they don't have to mention it. They're just sharing their opinions. There was one quote you didn't mention, Will. Buffett said he doesn't think that Bitcoin is worth anything because it doesn't 
produce anything. I think about that and I think about where the world is going, right? We're talking about Bitcoin not producing anything. And I talk about the people who are coming up a lot on this, on this show, you know, like the kids that are playing Roblox, the kids that are more operating in this world that we think will eventually become the metaverse. And the technology behind Bitcoin does produce something for those people. And so reading this was funny. They don't have to get it or they can get it and they don't have to say they get it. But I think that we all know that there is something behind Bitcoin that people should be paying attention to. Before I pass it to you, Zach, I was thinking while I was reading this, I really want to see Jack Dorsey interview both of these guys. I think it could be amazing Ooh. and great and hilarious. But Zach, I saw your head go up. Let's read between the lines here, guys. I think what Mr. Buffett is saying is that he's a big time yield farmer. He is an ETH boy mm. through and through. <laughs> Bitcoin doesn't exist natively in DeFi, right? It doesn't give you the, the returns, the yields that some of the DeFi options on Ethereum and other smart contract platforms do. And clearly that's what he's going for here, right? He is putting money in the box, as famously articulated by Sam Bankman-Fried last week, and he wants those yields. So I think it's just time for like, you know, the Ethereum people to start red-pilling Buffett and saying, okay, I know Bitcoin is an asset, right? It's digital gold. But on the other side of the ledger, we got this Ethereum stuff and it powers all these financial applications. That's the useful stuff that maybe he's saying he's into. That would be crazy if he just skipped Bitcoin went full degen, and we saw him in the wilds of some pretty crazy yield farms. How about that? Should we take some bets? Jen? Buffett Dow. Buffett, Buffett Dow. Dow. Here Buffett Dow. When Buffett <laughs> Dow. All right. We're changing gears. Jen, take it away. All right. But we're moving over to Yuga Labs. So they are the company behind the board Ape Yacht Club, and their much anticipated land sale on the weekend for its other side, Metaverse, resulted in a land rush generating $285 million for the company and some super high gas fees. So investors are said to have spent over $176 million in fees alone. So a lot of people on Twitter on the weekend were questioning if Ethereum can handle these mass NFT projects moving forward. But Will, I'm going to pass this down to you. What do you think of the other side? Uh, I don't have any thoughts on this NFT collection per se. Obviously, it did very well for itself, and people who wanted to buy it were going to make sure that they did get to buy it. I think overall, this is a really interesting story because it talks about Ethereum and it talks about the demand for block space on chain. So get a little nerdy with me for a second, just delve into it. What we're seeing here is demand to use block space and put a financial asset onto that chain itself. And you're basically running up against a queue of other people who are also trying to cram into that same block space. And when that happens, you see fees shoot upward. And this is the world everyone is walking into if they're interested in cryptocurrency, whether they like it or not. When I use Venmo, I do have a little fee, but it just goes to a central party just to facilitate that for custodian risk. When I use a cryptocurrency with a blockchain, I'm paying for a fee. I'm using that fee to secure the network and also to make sure that I do get my spot in line. When we see things like this, where there's an auction of some sort and everyone's trying to rush into the same block, you're going to see these crazy fees. Like This is not going to stop happening. This will continue to happen. The more hype projects that are out there, the more people need to settle a transaction on chain, you're going to continue to see like these astronomical fees. It's not going to stop happening for quite a while until there's some sort of technological change that can facilitate more transactions on chain and lower the aggregate fees. Zach, I want to throw this one to you, though, and get your take on it. I took us to Nerd Corner for a second, but maybe take us back into like the green pastures of why this matters for NFT markets or 
or whatever no, we got the for No, ner- the nerd corner is the place to be. It's really important to understand that. That's the story of CryptoKitties clogging the Ethereum blockchain. It's the story of why CryptoKitties creator Dapper Labs created their own blockchain, Flow, to host their next breakout project, NBA Top Shot. And now, interestingly, you're seeing Yuga Labs say the same thing. Hey, we want the DAO to start thinking about other alternatives for where this project can live going forward, whether that is an avalanche subnet, whether that is a polygon supernet, whether that is something else entirely, maybe it's something akin to the Ronin network. We saw how that went with the Axie Infinity creators recently. It's going to be really interesting to see what the lesson is from this and if Yuga Labs takes its ball and goes elsewhere. Maybe they want the elite thing. Maybe this is a luxury good that wants to exist on chain, on the Ethereum chain, where that's where the party is. Maybe they want to be there. And maybe the people who are able to afford these sales don't mind the crazy gas costs at the end of the day because they're up big. So anyway, it's going to be interesting to see what the plan is going forward. If some of the tea leaves that are in this article and others play out and we see a board ape specific blockchain pop up on one of these other networks or its own new network entirely. I think there's going to be a lot of poking around to see if anyone has any intel on what the current state of that conversation is. But I'm going to throw it to Jen for her thoughts. So Yuga Labs also said that they're, well, I, I don't know if they said this exactly, but there's speculation that Yuga Labs is going to refund the gas fees to all of these people who spent exorbitant amounts of gas on this metaverse land. And it begs the question for me, like we talk so much about mainstream adoption and, and, you know, wanting everyone to come and benefit from this technology. But then when we have a large amount of people who are all coming to do one thing, like we've seen in this project, the technology can't handle it. And so should we maybe as an industry be rather focusing on building up the technology and maybe there's enough adoption here to test the technology now? That's what I've been pondering as I read this story. I'm not sure if either of you have any thoughts on that. It just feels like there's enough people here to start building the technology and maybe we should wait for that mass adoption. Mm. NFTs are forcing some uh, intellectual conversations this morning, which is a rare thing itself. I think to your question, in terms of like technological adoption, there has been interest for so long, but all these NFT projects are building on the shoulders of previous builders and those builders can figure it out. I don't assume that this generation of builders is necessarily going to figure it out either. And the reason I say that is because what Bitcoin did, what Ethereum did, what these chains did was already revolutionary in the fact that they made permissionless censorship resistant money. And now we're trying to scale it up to where everyone can access it. I think there's going to be some trade-offs. Like I do think that there's some things out there like rollups, like the Lightning Network, things out there that can help move money to more people. But at the end of the day, you're going to have bottlenecks and you're going to have some rough times. And you know, I think NFT market is probably the best place for that to happen. Like a lot of people who were playing around with this have a lot of money to lose. So I don't feel super bad about the whole thing. I do think what's happening in general with like the tech conversation needs to continue happening. If we're going to see more stories like El Salvador or uh, the Central Republic of Africa accepting Bitcoin, if we're going to see more things like that or Ukraine accepting stable coins, like those are the sort of stories that really matter and need some tech solutions to them. And these NFT stories are sort of like the tip of the spear for what we're going to see in the future when we have larger tech problems. Zach, I'll give it to you for the last thoughts on the story, though. Yeah, for sure. So headlines like this are a great advertisement for these faster smart contract chains that are looking to make their case for why they should exist. Hey, we can support these things. We do fast. We do cheap. Sure, there are some decentralization trade-offs. Sure, most people may not care about that. 
But this is an advertisement for, again, those roll-up networks and also the cheaper, faster base layers that have emerged, you know, the Avalanches, the Nears, the Solanas. The flip side is we're going to have our next story, which is going to be a, a counterpoint to that pitch, right? You know, some of these other networks can't necessarily always get onto their feet as fast as they would like in a way that is reliable all the time. So there are trade-offs. This stuff is very much experimental, right? This stuff is still being built as all these huge sums of money pour into it. So these issues, these congestion issues are a good reminder that we're not there yet. So it's good to see. But I'm going to toss it to Will, who has a nice little complimentary headline to this whole. It is pretty complimentary. This weekend was really interesting because we have three different stories on chain on three different networks. We'll go to that in a second. But first, Solana went down this weekend for about seven hours after an NFT minter went crazy, spammed the network, just tons of demand to fill block space. The network couldn't handle it, and it shut down for about seven hours. This led to a lot of different problems for the rest of the chain. If you're trying to maybe close out a loan because of the price of Solana went down, well, you probably couldn't get a transaction on chain. It means that your loan got liquidated and you lost a lot of money. Uh, you couldn't mint any more FTs. You couldn't send Solana. Solana itself lost about 16 to 20% on the day because of what happened with Saturday with the network going down. But to, to go back to my earlier point, this is just another story of scaling blockchains and the problems we have with scaling blockchains. A lot of these things, even the fast ones, the, the ones that tout themselves as like the Ferrari of blockchains, they have tons of problems still. Zach, I want to throw this one over to you though, and maybe you can set us up with like what happened with Ethereum, with the Basie incident, and then here with Solana, with Solana crashing. Yeah, like similarly heightened demand for very different reasons, right? One is the most buzzy thing since sliced bread. The other is potentially someone just doing what amounts to sort of a denial of service attack, right? You know, spam the thing with trans transactions and it ultimately gums up the works. Solana has had a history with going down. I mean, this isn't as pronounced. I think there was a pretty much like a 24-hour outage late last year. So this isn't like the top one in the history of Solana. But Solana has long suffered from degraded service because of issues such as this. There are some tech solutions in the works. That was sort of the low-key buzz at the Crypto Bahamas event where I was at last week where a lot of Solana people were in attendance. There is a technical update that may address some of these problems. And that's going to be interesting to watch in terms of how that gets rolled out and how smoothly it does. And if it does, then again, maybe Solana can indeed lay claim to, hey, we have the faster, cheaper, mainstream friendly, we can handle all the transactions pitch that people in the market are kind of clamoring for. Other people are sort of uh, hanging their same hat on that pitch, other faster, cheaper networks. But if Solana can iron it out, then it's going to be interesting to see sort of like, you know, corporate crypto really kick it into super drive over on a, a more sturdy network. I don't know. going to be interesting to see, but I'll toss it back to Will. Yeah, the, the way I looked at it is Bitcoin has a low fee problem right now where no one is really using Bitcoin to send money. And that's why fees are super, super low. It costs like a cent to send a transaction right now, like a little bit more than that, but it's pretty tiny. Ethereum has so much demand that it's almost unusable because it's so costly to send the basic transaction. And then Solana has a span problem where it just hits with so many transactions the network can't even handle it. And so you have like these three different models that are playing out in real time, the conservative model, in-between model, and a very liberal model. And the question now is like, which one works out in the long run? Like one weekend is just you know a little data point in the history books for what we're going to see over like next few years, but you're going to see like today turn into the issues for tomorrow, and you're going to see winners come out of this weekend. I think people are going to get tired of Solana going down, and they're just stuff getting liquidated on chain. Like that sucks. You don't want to be that person. 
people on Ethereum are going to get annoyed with having to spend so much money just to send a basic transaction. And people on Bitcoin are going to start wondering, oh, is like my transaction pretty secure at this point because the, the fee is so low? And I think you're going to start seeing some of these transactions move to different networks because they trust that network more. And some of these networks actually dry up because they don't want to use something that they don't know if it's going to work. Jen, I'll throw it to you for last thoughts, though. Yeah, I completely agree with everything both of you have said. It's the seventh outage for Solana this year, and especially covering it after the last story, it's like, okay, Solana was supposed to be this Ethereum killer, but, you know, it keeps going out. It's not reliable. Will, I have a question for you. So there's this part of the story. It says that Metaplex, which is the operator of Candy Machine, says that one of the solutions for this problem we're talking about is they're going to deploy a 0.01 sole or 89 cent penalty whenever a wallet attempts to complete an invalid transaction. That, that seems really low to me, and I imagine this is probably going to be deployed in mass. Is that enough of a solution for something like this? Yeah, it's really interesting to see them deploy these things in live time because Ethereum had to do the same thing a few years ago. So go back to 2016, there's a thing called the Shanghai attacks. Basically, a bunch of Ethereum developers were in Shanghai at the time. Network got DDoS attacked, so denial of service. Tons of transactions flooding the network that were basically costless. So it wasn't costing the attacker much to attack the Ethereum chain. And part of the Ethereum network went down. And so what we saw during that time is that Ethereum had to implement a series of hard forks, basically code changes really fast on chain to mitigate this attack and get the chain back onto where it's supposed to be. Four or five years later, we're seeing Solana doing the exact same thing. They're getting attacked by these spam bots. Things aren't perfectly tweaked on chain for these smart contracts to function how they should in live time. And so they're making changes to this quote-unquote decentralized network on the go. Well, someone's behind the keyboard making those changes and pushing them live. But it's not uncommon to see like technical changes on the fly for these smart contract platforms. I'll give it to Zach for closing thoughts. Let's change it up on the fly, wrap this show. You ready? That's it. Show wrapped. Thanks for watching us on a Monday. It's good to be back. Hey, Jen. Hey, Will. You guys are great as ever. Thanks for checking us out. Also, check us out on the podcast. If you haven't done the podcast already, good way to do it. We go check that out on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We are there as well. All right, that's it for today. We will see you tomorrow on the Tuesday show. And we are looking forward to it. We hope you are as well. Have a great day. Happy Monday. See you soon. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 